If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The medieval Welsh marches are often seen as a hotly contested border territory between Wales and England that frequently boiled over into violence. But as Helen Fulton, who is leading a new research project on this topic, explains in today's episode, by examining Welsh literature and praise poetry, we can explore an often overlooked side to frontier life. Emily Briffitt spoke to Helen to find out more. Hi, Helen. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Emily. It's a pleasure. So we're going to be talking all about the medieval Welsh marches. Now, when we're talking about the medieval Welsh marches, what do we actually mean? The marches refer to that area of land on the border between Wales and England, but it also extends down around the south coast of Wales through Glamorgan and Carmarthenshire, right to the southwest tip of Wales. And these were the regions that were settled, or we might say colonised, by Norman settlers after 1066. And so these are areas that were owned by very powerful lords called the Lords of the March or the Marcher Lords, who were subject to the English crown. 
known. So there's a very distinctive geographical area that we think of as the marches or the marcher lordships, and that's the areas where they are, that to the east of Wales, on the border with England, and along the south coast as well. What sort of time frame are we actually talking about here? What Years, decades? Well, to make it simple, we could talk about 1066 because that's really when Wales began to be settled in large numbers and large areas by Normans and their followers. And the marcher lordships really extended right up until the Act of Union in 1536. And after that, Henry VIII reconfigured Wales into English style counties. So the marcher lordships disappeared. So we're looking at the period between 1066 and 1536, basically, although my project is looking at the later Middle Ages. So my project is really looking at the period between 1282 and 1536, because 1282 was a key year in Welsh history. That's when Edward I conquered the last bit of independent North Wales. The last Prince of Wales, Llewellyn Mac Griffith, was killed in 1282 in battle. And after that, the English government took over the administration of the whole of Wales. So after 1282, there were marcher lordships in the east and the south. And then in the north and the west, there was an area called the Principality, which were the crown lordships owned and managed by the English crown. So after 1282, there was quite a big political and cultural change where Wales was divided into the marcher lordships and the crown lordships or the principality. I imagine that this is a region to govern that is quite unlike any other perhaps in Wales or in England. What did governance look like in this region? The governance was really split between the crown lordships, which were governed directly by the crown, and the marcher lordships, which were divided up into this sort of patchwork of around 40 lordships that were governed as independent fiefdoms. So although the marcher lords were technically English noblemen who were subject to the English king and they held their land of the English king, in fact, they had a great deal of autonomy within their marcher lordships and the king was not allowed to override what they decided in their marcher lordships. So for the life of the ordinary people, a lot depended on who your lord was and how sympathetic he was to his population within his lordship. And each lordship was governed a little bit differently. Do we see it perhaps any regional differences between north and south? To a certain extent, although the difference is really between the crown lordships and the marcher lordships in terms of governance and way of life. And as I say, the governance and and the sort of daily life of the marcher lordships depended very much on who the lord was and whether he was there very much because many of them had lands elsewhere. They were away fighting wars. They were away in their other lands. Many of them had lands in Ireland, other parts of England, northern France and so on. So a lot depended on the personality and the nature of the individual marcher lords and their family and their household. So, I mean, they were really interesting areas because within the marcher lordships, there were many, many Welsh inhabitants, of course, who spoke Welsh, lived their lives in Welsh. And then this other population of mainly English people who lived particularly in the towns, but also had some land as well. And so you get a very mixed population, mixed in terms of culture and languages. So could you tell us a little bit about the languages and was there ever a common tongue? 
Well, the common language of Wales was Welsh and, and still is Welsh to a certain extent. So that is the language of Wales. But there was a lot of multilingualism. Most people spoke more than one language. They would speak Welsh and English, English and French, for example. So a lot of French still spoken right through the 14th century. But Welsh and English were the two main languages. They kind of coexisted. And by the 15th century, English was beginning to sort of impinge on Welsh and make inroads and becoming quite a common language. What about the law itself? Did they follow an English law or a Welsh law? Or was it a bit of a mix of both? It was a mix of both, yeah. Both jurisdictions operated in the March and in the, the Crown Lordships too. So there was a traditional system of Welsh law but the English imposed English law as well. And very often people could choose whether they wanted to be judged by Welsh law or English law, whichever was the most favourable to them. So you get people in court cases saying, you know, I'd rather be Welsh or I'd rather be English in order to make it more favourable for them. Should we see the medieval Welsh march more of a physical border, perhaps one that could be plotted out on a map? Or is it a frontier zone? Yes, that's actually a good term for it. And many historians do think of it as a frontier because there was a lot of border warfare, less so in the 14th and 15th centuries, which is what I'm interested in. But certainly up until 1282, a great deal of border warfare really was like a frontier, like a military frontier. And all the lovely castles that we we love in Wales, most of them were actually built by the English in order to keep down the Welsh population. So it was like a frontier and there was no physical border, although the tradition was that there were topographical features which defined the border between Wales and England. So typically the rivers Wye and Severn in the south and then Anglo-Saxon fortifications like Office Dyke more towards the north. Those were regarded as boundaries or borders. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. 
Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about we're talking about this zone where you've got a mix of both Welsh and English, you've got a level of multiculturalism here. How did people living in this area understand their own identity? Did they see themselves as Welsh or English or a bit of both? Well, that's one of the things I'm investigating in a project, in my research project that I've got going at the moment, mapping the medieval march of Wales. And I'm very interested in that idea of cultural identity, social identity, national identity, because I think it was something that was debated and discussed even at the time and something that interested people, that sense of who you were, whether you were Welsh or whether you were English. And I think different people at different times chose different answers, as it were, because although the Welsh had a very strong sense of their own nationhood, many, many of the Welsh, especially the Welsh gentry, worked for marcher lords or for the English crown and helped to govern on behalf of the lords or the English crown. So in a sense, they were aligning themselves in class terms with the English nobility, and many of the Welsh gentry wanted to align themselves with the dominant class. And so they intermarried, they learned English, they wanted to be part of the English ruling class. So there was a lot of ambivalence, I think, about cultural identity, and that is one of the things I'm really interested in. So, as you say, so there were differences in, even between perhaps people of different social statuses and their approaches as well. Absolutely, definitely, yes, yeah. The Welsh really were a colonised people and, you know, however much the Welsh gentry collaborated, as it were, with the English, the Welsh were still oppressed. They were at a disadvantage because of this colonial power in their country. So, for example, there were laws that prevented... Welsh from trading in the towns. They could go into the towns to buy goods, but not to sell goods, because the English inhabitants of the towns wanted a monopoly on trade. So the English got all kinds of special deals, which were not open to the Welsh. So there was legally and uh, in terms of uh, social convention, there were lots of ways in which the Welsh were discriminated against, which led to a big kind of anti-English push in terms of Welsh poetry, for example, many, many references to anti-English sentiment, you know, we hate the English, English go home, that kind of thing in the poetry. But as I say, that was an attitude that was partly rhetorical. There was also a sense in which the Welsh benefited from an English commercial culture, from the culture of the towns, bringing goods into Wales. They were more consumer objects available for them. So there were some benefits for the Welsh. And as I say, many of them intermarried. But there was another layer in which people thought, we're a colonised people and we don't like it. So you can almost see an element of getting by, but also a real power imbalance there as well. Absolutely, yes, a very real power imbalance. Some of the Welsh noblemen did rise to be quite powerful. For example, William Herbert of Raglan, who lived in the early to mid-15th century, 
He died in 1469 at the Battle of Banbury, part of the Wars of the Roses. He was an exceptional Welshman who allied himself with the Yorkist cause and was very close to the man who became Edward IV and really helped to put Edward IV on the throne. And as a result, William Herbert was made an earl, the Earl of Pembroke, which was an extraordinary thing for a Welshman. A number of Welshmen had been knighted, though not very many, but to be made an earl was extraordinary. So he really straddled the two cultures between Welsh and English. Obviously a Welsh speaker, Welsh poets composed praise poetry to him. He was quite an outstanding and exceptional figure. So even though William Herbert was an English earl, he was still very much part of the Welsh identity and really thought of as a Welshman by the Welsh poets. And when he died just after the Battle of Banbury, he was taken prisoner and then he and his brother Richard were killed by the English after the Battle of Banbury in 1469. The Welsh poets were horrified and it was another reason for them to sort of bash the English. And there's some lovely elegies to William Herbert. There's one in particular by a poet called Yean de Lewin, who flourished around the middle of the 15th century. And in this elegy for William Herbert, he says, Clave an avarn, the warnaud, ir clave arol yar eithraud. An outcry in judgment all day is the outcry for the earl and his brother. And he goes on to say, like Bilth, the place name Bilth Wells, like Bilth when the axe fell, a handle for killing, Banbury is another. So the poet is comparing the Battle of Banbury and the outcome of Banbury with the battle at Bilth when the last Welsh prince, Llewellyn Up Griffith, was killed in 1282. So he's making a direct comparison between William Herbert and the last Prince of Wales, and the two of them unlawfully, dreadfully killed by the perfidious English. Were there political and military alliances, and were these common? Yes, there were quite a lot of military alliances because by the 14th and 15th century, we were sort of into the Hundred Years' War and then the Wars of the Roses, and Welsh soldiers, Welshmen, fought for their marcher lords, so they would fight you know, led by their march lord, they would fight for them in the French and the Scottish wars of the English crown. So they were really part of, you know, what we might think of as a British army. They were fighting alongside Englishmen and they were fighting on behalf of their march lords and indirectly for the crown. So they really were, you know, they really were on the English side in the French wars. So from political and military alliances, what about more social alliances? I know you mentioned before about marriages, but do we know of any particular strong friendships as well and family ties too? Yes, there were very strong family ties, especially towards the end of the Middle Ages, sort of during the 15th century. Many English families really became quite Welsh in terms of how they wanted to live, how they spelled their names. They received praise poems from Welsh poets written to them in Welsh. So I'm thinking of families like the Pilstons, the Salisburys, families like that who had Welsh and English versions of their names and had learnt Welsh, were able to understand Welsh praise poetry and really felt that they were assimilated into this kind of border society that was on the marches, quite different from the culture further west and north. So there was a lot of intermarriage 
lots of, you know, weddings between people from traditional Welsh families and people who were more recent settlers on the marches. So it was a very interesting social mix. So it's also a very cultural thing, talking about having double names and that kind of thing. Do we see a lot of that? And could you perhaps tell us a little bit about the interactions on a day-to-day basis? We don't know an awful lot about day-to-day life, although we do have some understanding from charters and various historical records. And Welsh poetry is a huge source of information about social life. I mean, obviously, with poetry, it's quite stylized, formal, and you have to take a certain amount of you know, poetic license with it. But it really does give an impression of day-to-day life. There's a lovely poem by a 15th century poet called Lewis Glyn Cothy celebrating the marriage of a Welsh woman with a marcher family, so a family that was originally English but had become quite assimilated. And there's a wonderful description of her dressed for her wedding in this amazing consumer finery of lace and velvet and rich fabrics that were really a product of the commercialised economy of the march and the availability of these luxury goods on the border because of increased trade between England and Wales. So it's a marker of that consumer wealth that both Welsh and English families of that class enjoyed and this idea of a union between a traditional Welsh family and a more recent marcher family. And that's what they're both bringing to the marriage, as it were. She's bringing the status of being an old Welsh family, and he's bringing the wealth and the status of being a marcher gentry family. So those kinds of poems gives us a real insight, certainly into the day-to-day lives or, or the actual lives of that particular social class. Now, you've mentioned about the Welsh praise poets. Could you just tell us a little bit more about who they are and what we should know about them? Yes, it's an amazing body of material, a very large corpus of material. And we know the names of most of the poets who wrote this praise poetry. And there are many, many of them, dozens and dozens of names. We don't always know an awful lot about the individuals themselves. We usually know more or less where they came from or where they operated, though many of them travelled around Wales quite a lot. And before 1282, they were in the courts of the princes, the old princes of Wales. But after 1282, when the princes had disappeared and Welsh culture was supported by these new gentry families, the poets moved around from house to house, from court to court, and around the abbeys as well, singing to clerics and monks in the abbeys. They also moved around the towns of Wales, singing in the towns to the people of the towns. So they had quite a wide remit, but they were often retained or commissioned by patrons to compose praise poetry to them and to their members of their family. Is it a common thing to hear the Welsh perspective on this? Well, no, it isn't terribly, which is why the poetry is so important, because it's like a live running commentary on what's happening across those centuries, because otherwise we don't really have much of a sense of the Welsh perspective on things. All the historical records are mostly kept by the marcher lords and by the English crown. So it's very much from the the colonial perspective. So that's one of the reasons why we value the poetry so much. What sorts of things, I know you've mentioned marriages, but what other things do they pick up on in their poetry? 
They pick up on military exploits, especially in the 14th and 15th century when many of the Welsh nobility and their men were off fighting in France, Scotland, wherever. So there's a lot about heroic deeds in battle, the loyalty of the Lord. A lot of them are traditional values that go right back to the period of the princes in the 11th and 12th centuries. So a lot of it is about traditional values of loyalty, generosity, heroism, leadership, those sort of strong qualities that are particularly admired in the poetry. So military exploits are covered, political negotiations. There's a lot of prophecy about who's going to be the next king and so on. There's a fascinating line of prophetic poems in the 15th century about the rise of Henry Tudor and how the Welsh want him to be the next king. He became king. He became Henry VII in 1485 at the Battle of Bosworth. And there's a a lot of prophetic poetry leading up to that where the Welsh claim him as their own because Henry was born in Wales and had Welsh ancestry. And so the Welsh thought of him as a Welsh king and they really wanted him to take the throne in 1485, which he did. And there's this wonderful collection of prophetic poems about the Wars of the Roses. Is it all very heroic or do we get an idea of some of the problems and the troubles that came with living on this sort of frontier? Yes, absolutely. The the, the sort of anti-English sentiment comes through the poetry. Lots of descriptions of standoffs between the Welsh and the English. Lots of indications that the Welsh are not happy to be governed by the English. We also get some lovely descriptions of the houses where the gentry, some of the gentry lived. And there's a sub-genre of poems about houses, about the description of the houses. So there's a couple of lovely ones to the court of Owen Glyndwr, the famous rebel who rebelled against the king in 1400. And there are some lovely poems to his house or his court, which was called Sychath in the northeast of Wales. And there's poems describing exactly what the house looked like and the building and the architectural features. So those are lovely insights into how that level of gentry lived. So you are looking at some of the historical sources surrounding this. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about some that you're looking at. Yes, well, I'm mostly interested in manuscripts and the literary texts that are in manuscripts. But another part of the project is looking at the historical sources, which are mainly things like the records of English government, so exchequer, court rolls, rentals and surveys, charters relating to individual march of lordships and so on. So those are all in the British Library or the National Archive. So we'll be looking at those partly to get a sense of where the boundaries of the March of Lordships were because they've never been properly mapped. And the March of Lordships changed a lot. Even in my period between 1282 and 1536, there was a lot of changing of hands of the Lordships and the boundaries changed as the king took away land or gave more land to certain people. So they've never been properly mapped. We have a vague idea and there's been a number of very useful sketch maps done of the March of Lordships. So what I'm doing in my project is working with some mapping experts 
to actually map the the accurate boundaries of the March of Lordships, taking snapshots at different times during the 14th and 15th centuries. And I think that will be a really useful resource for us to understand exactly where the March of Lordships were and who the lords were at different periods of time over those centuries. I'm also interested in the manuscripts that circulated around the marches because they're, they're very interesting because they are mostly multilingual. Some of them are only in Welsh, some are only in English, but typically they're a mixture of languages of Welsh, Latin, French and English. And many of them were written on what we would think of as the English side of the border. So there's a little cluster of manuscripts around Ludlow, for example, another little cluster around Shrewsbury, and yet they refer to things in Wales or Welsh place names. So they're clearly aware of being close to Welsh culture, even though they don't include much Welsh within those manuscripts. So what I'm trying to do in my research is extend the idea of the marches right into England, because we know that parts of Gloucestershire, Herefordshire, Shropshire, Chester had many Welsh people living there and considering themselves Welsh and yet living technically in what we would think of as England. So, for example, there's grants of land in Hereford where you get an English name and a Welsh name. So, for example, David Crump Cook of Hereford grants land to Yeyan Ap Rees, Draper of Hereford. That's a late 14th century grant of land. And so clearly David Crump, the Englishman, and Yeyan Ap Rees, the Welshman, are living cheek by jowl together in Hereford. So a lot of those towns like Hereford and Shrewsbury, they have Welsh names as well as English names. So there's clearly a sort of multilingual culture spilling over what we now think of as the border. And the manuscript evidence is very clear on that. And that's why I'm interested in those multilingual manuscripts. I think that's really interesting. I would have thought that it would have just mainly been out down the traditional border line as we might think of the modern border, perhaps. It's interesting how far out perhaps people were living. Well, it's partly because the March of Lordships kind of crossed what we now think of as the border. The official border didn't really come into being until Henry VIII's time. So before then, there was no real jurisdictional border. The jurisdictional borders were the March of Lordships, and some of the Lordships included bits of land in Herefordshire and, and Shropshire as well as on the other side, on the Welsh side of the border. So those were the jurisdictions, not the modern jurisdictions. So it would be quite normal for a Welshman to live in Hereford and yet still think he was part of Wales, as it were, because, you know, he was part of that march of lordship. I guess it must be quite hard to track going all the way back to the medieval period and seeing how those two people, the cook and the draper, may have lived side by side. We can say that they did, I presume we know very little about actually what that life may have looked like. Well, we have some snippets of urban life in Welsh and border towns, again from the poetry really. There's a lovely poem about the city of Chester where a Welsh poet writing in Welsh is in Chester performing his songs and his poetry and being very annoyed by an English musician who's drowning him out. 
So he has all this satire about this wretched piper and the dreadful noise he's making. And it's a very funny satirical poem, but it does give you that sense that Welsh and English bingled together in the towns along the border, sometimes resenting each other, but on the other hand, basically living together in more or less harmony. So we do get these glimpses and it is a very interesting idea of a border society where you've got lots of languages and and cultures mixing together. And I think there are lessons there for the modern world too in terms of border societies and border cities as well. Do we get a sense of how identity or relationships may have changed after it became a very fixed border, as you mentioned earlier? That's an interesting question. We do get some evidence and there's more writing in Welsh from the 16th century onwards. There's certainly a continuing tradition of poetry in Welsh and we get a lot more in the way of letters and and other kinds of writing after the 16th century. So there's a bit more evidence to work with. And we do get a sense that the, the Welsh gentry actually welcomed the Act of Union, even though it annexed Wales to England. They thought it was better than than having the march of lordships, which were, you know, so unequal in terms of power, and they were often badly governed. So the Act of Union, where the English Crown took over the administration of the Welsh counties, was welcome to most Welsh people because they would be better governed and they thought they'd get a better deal from the English Crown than they had from the Marcher Lords. So so that was quite inter- that's quite an interesting response because many people think the Act of Union is a, a terrible sort of, you know, colonial yoking of Wales to England, a loss of Welsh identity, prejudice against the Welsh language and so on. But for many Welsh people, especially on the border, it was a welcome constitutional change. And at that point, well, really from 1485 onwards, when Henry Tudor came to the throne, many Welsh people had moved to London, worked for the English crown, were sort of part of English establishment life. So many people had allegiances to the English crown, even though they were quite devoutly Welsh. (laughs) As a final question to you, How would you say the history of the Welsh marches, the identity, the relationships, perhaps affected the identity of this region today? I think there is still quite a distinctive sense of being on the border if you live or have grown up in one of the border towns. So places like Hay-on-Wye, right on the border, even Brecon, Oswestry, Welshpool, Wrexham, Mould, And then other places like Hereford and Shrewsbury as well, which are very close to the border. I think there is a real sense that you're part of a border community and people often cross the border for work, for example, or you live on one side, you go to school on the other side. There's all kinds of ways of, of crossing that border while people still feel part of a single community. And I think the cultural critic Raymond Williams, who lived and wrote in the 20th century, He came from the border himself and wrote very perceptively about being on the border and what it was to be living in a border community, especially a bilingual border community. So I think there is a real sense that that there is a community there that's that's not entirely English, not entirely Welsh. And that's, that's something I want to explore a bit more by making contact with people who live in these towns on the border and how they feel about it and what they feel about their cultural identity. 
That was Helen Fulton, Professor of Medieval Literature at the University of Bristol and co-editor of the Cambridge History of Welsh Literature. She is currently leading a large research project on the Medieval March of Wales, funded by the European Research Council and UKRI. You can find more information about the project online at www.molit.ac.uk. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Creamhard. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.